Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 11. It says, now while they were going, that is the women, from the tomb, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. In chapter 28, the focus is on two post-resurrection appearances of Jesus one to a group of women in verses 1 through 15, and then to the 11 disciples in verses 16 through 20. While the women were making their way through the city with the news that Jesus had risen from the dead, the guards were making their way through that same city, making their way to the religious leaders to report that their worst fears had come to pass that the body of Jesus was gone. And you can imagine the stir that took place in Jerusalem that resurrection morning. The women were reporting that Jesus is alive, and the guards were reporting to the religious leaders the events that had taken place on their watch. The religious leaders will hatch a plot to explain what they cannot bring themselves to believe. The body of Jesus is gone. So what are our options? We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, or we don't. But in order to participate in the fraud, in order to participate in the cover-up, we have to either doubt the truth that's told in the Bible, or deny the truth, or willingly ignore the truth. We have to come up with an explanation of what happened to the body. And when your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your friend, or your relative says point blank to you, I don't believe in Christianity. I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe in Jesus. You need to be able to say to them, what is it that you do believe? Tell me what you do believe. Help me understand what you think happened to the body of Jesus. My friend Josh McDowell wrote many, many years ago, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject, of thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history, unquote. The resurrection of Jesus might be the most analyzed event in all of human history, but can we prove that Jesus rose from the dead? It all depends on what you're willing to accept as evidence. One thing is certain. The angel's appearance and the announcement set in motion another story, another version of what happened that Sunday morning. The Lord Jesus will launch his resurrection mission, and Satan, the devil, will launch a counter mission and try to convince the world 
that Jesus never really rose from the dead. And you're living in that world where there are concerted efforts to try to get you to believe something that isn't true. I grew up in a world that, that where they didn't honor God, where we didn't really believe the Bible. My mother and father didn't really respect God, respect Jesus, or even respect churchgoers. My father was from Sicily. He came here after World War II. My father, 100% Sicilian, and he loves crime shows. He loves FBI shows and criminal shows and NCIS and all of those other shows. And my father would watch them religiously, and he, he would say to me, Hey, Gino, <laughs> hey, do you know how hard it is to hide DNA in an alligator's intestines? I go, Dad, why, why in the world are you telling me this? I remember asking my dad, for no particular reason, what's the hardest part about killing someone? And my father said, how should I know? He said, but if I were to guess, if I were to guess, it's how do you dispose of the body? My dad taught me from a very early age, no body, no crime. <laughs> Look again at verse 11. Tell us what really happened. Now, while they, that is, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. The women's story is found in verses 8 through 10. The women were given a glimpse of the gospel of the resurrection, and the people who believed that Jesus rose from the dead and participated in the gospel of the resurrection, they were promised that they would experience the presence of Jesus. Later, the soldiers are, are told to spread the lie. The people who witnessed the resurrection and witnessed Jesus, they experience His presence. The, the people who are told to spread the lie, they're promised money. While the women are trying to spread the gospel with some of the guards leaving the tomb and entering the city, the opposition begins right off the bat. Remember what's happening. The women are spreading the gospel, and the guards are trying to arrest the gospel. And when the opposition begins, I'm going to suggest to you that even before the women are making their way into the city and they have an opportunity to tell the apostles of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus, number one, an angel has showed up. Number two, he's announced that Jesus has risen from the dead. And number three, we saw him. In all of those instances, the apostles and the disciples said, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. They denied the witness of the women. They denied the supernatural presence of an angel. They denied an empty tomb. And I'm going to suggest to you, even before they were able to deny those things, the guards have made their way and have told the religious leaders what they saw. It says, behold, some of the guard went into the city. You should ask yourself right away concerning the text, why not all of the guard? Why didn't all of them go? We're not sure. Some may have feared what awaited them. Maybe they thought that if all of them showed up, it would arouse suspicion. We're not even sure how many guards were posted at the tomb. Estimates have ranged from as low as 12 to as high as 50 trained Roman guards. Albert Roper, in his book, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead, makes the following observation, quote, commanding the guard was a centurion, designated by Pilate, presumably one in which he would have had full confidence, whose name, according to tradition, was Petronius, unquote. 
But the guards report to the chief priest all the things that happened. What did they report? Presumably what's recorded in verses 2 through 4 in chapter 28, where it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. He came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him, and they became like dead men. Can you imagine if you were there? Can you imagine the guards' report? Now, I'm fairly certain that these Roman guards are of the Italian cohort. They're reporting a giant earthquake. They're recording an angelic being has come from outer space, that he appears like one of the gods. This angel lifts the stone from the door, and then he sits on top of it as easily as an eagle might alight on a tree. And here's what they're they're saying. No, I'm telling you the truth. The guy was glowing. He was glowing. He was not from around here. The guards went into a state of catatonic denial in verse 4. Some people have close encounters with the supernatural. They have close encounters with Christianity, but they fall short of true repentance and true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're around that circle. They hang out with Christian people. They have Christian friends. They grew up in a Christian family. On my radio program last week, a person called me and said, have you ever heard of Bart Ehrman? And I said, of course I've, I've heard of Bart Ehrman. He's one of the most famous apostates in Christianity. He grew up in a, in a Christian home. He went to a Christian church. He went to a Christian Bible school. He went to a Christian seminary and graduated from that seminary. And he came to believe that Christianity isn't true that what the New Testament says about Jesus is a lie. But he himself had to come up with an alternative explanation. Well, then how do you explain what happened? His own explanation was that there was visions and hallucinations, and that the people took these visions and hallucinations and fabricated the story of the resurrection. According to Matthew, the religious leaders may have heard about the resurrection, that is, the disappearance of Jesus before the disciples. And again, what did the Roman soldiers say? Was it some ancient version of Rocky Balboa where he goes, yo, religious dudes, you're never going to believe this. The earth shook. An angel came from heaven the body of the crucified Jew, no offense, it's gone. It's gone. And the reason why we suspect that they told him exactly what they saw is because they're bribing them to say something that they did not see. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is met with immediate opposition not from the person on the street, not from the science community, but from the religious establishment. And it's interesting to me how much of the resurrection is met with constant opposition from religious people as they try to explain the overwhelming evidence concerning the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, there's a difference between knowing the truth and telling a lie in verses 12 through 14. Look what it says in verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and they consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night, stole him away while we slept. And if this 
comes to the governor's ears. We will appease him. We will make you secure. We're not told if the religious leaders believed the soldier's report. The expression consulted together is very specific in the original language. It implies a lengthy deliberation. This isn't some sort of panic situation. This is a situation where they have spoken to them at length, and now the religious leaders gather at length, and then they begin to ask and answer the question, what are we going to say? What are our options? The religious leaders have used every means available up until this point to falsely accuse Jesus of crimes that He never committed. They held an illegal trial. They manipulated the Roman government. They used treachery. They used deceit. They used trickery to execute one of their own people. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who are supposed to be in charge of you having a right relationship with God. These are the people who are supposed to help you understand what it means to know God, love God, and have a right relationship with God. If the religious leaders are capable of obstruction of justice and murder, adding lies and an evil report won't make much of a difference. And some of you have had really good experiences in church. And some of you have had really bad experiences in church. This last week, I was talking to a friend who grew up in the Roman Catholic religion. He said his brother was molested by a priest and that he won't go to church, he won't talk about church, he won't talk about religion, he won't talk about any of that stuff. Because in his worldview, in his mind, religion is a joke, and Christianity is a joke, and religious leadership is a joke. There's no indication in our text that anyone ever entertained the idea that the soldiers might be telling the truth a bona fide supernatural event has taken place. Something has happened. How do we explain it? Did an angel steal the body of Jesus like Moses in the Old Testament? Did God raise Jesus from the dead? Quote, the soldiers brought alarm, fear, and confusion to the religious leaders, but they did not bring repentance or faith, one Bible writer writes. I am not surprised that, again, some of the greatest opponents of the resurrection of Jesus comes from the church, from the religious community. Do you believe this? There are pastors and there are priests who do not, I repeat, they do not believe that the Bible is true. They do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They do not believe what the Gospels record concerning the facts of the resurrection of Jesus. If you go to that kind of a church, leave. Leave. The last thing in the world you need is to be in a church where people don't really believe the Bible is true. Now, I happen to know that that's not true about this church. You have a pastor who loves the Lord and believes the Bible is true. This religious leader, they come up with a three-part plan. In their three-part plan, in order to deal with the problem, number one, they're going to bribe the soldiers. Number two, they're going to spread a fantastic lie about what happened to the body. And number three, they're going to claim that they will protect the soldiers from possible punishment by Pilate. So it begins with the bribing of the soldiers. They're going to give what the Bible says a huge or a large or as our president likes to use the term, tremendous, a tremendous amount of money. Money has been an almost demonic power in the New Testament. 
a considerable amount of money will bring a considerable amount of opposition to the gospel. There are people who will pay huge sums of money to try to get you to believe something that's not true. Again, the phrase counseled together or consulted together is a formal phrase used of official decisions. Pay the soldiers a huge sum of money. And again, the the irony in the text is overwhelming. For those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you'll remember that the religious leaders came to Pilate after the death of Jesus, and they said, we want you to help us get a guard, to guard the tomb. Why? Why would you want to guard a dead man? Well, because his, his disciples, and according to Jesus, he said he was going to come back to life. He said that he was going to come back to life. And we believe that his disciples are not above coming to the tomb, rolling away the stone, stealing the body, claiming that he's risen from the dead. And now the, this is going to be worse than all of the weird things that he said during the time of his life. And so think about what Pilate says to them. You have a guard, which means either you have a guard or I'm going to give you a guard. Whatever it means, it means that he is, they're, they're given permission to post this guard, to seal the tomb, to put a wax seal on it, and then to station the guard who are there. Now, again, the religious leaders beg Pilate for the guard and the seal. And in spite of the guard and in spite of the seal, the body is gone. The religious leaders had bribed Judas. Now they're going to have to bribe the guard because the stakes are high. What they feared most has taken place. The body is gone. And if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is risen from the dead, Religious Judaism is over with, for the most part. Because, you see, you can't be saved by religion. You can't be saved by simply showing up at a place and saying certain prayers and involving yourself in certain rituals. According to the Bible, in order to be saved, your sin has to be forgiven. And in order for your sin to be forgiven, according to the Bible, it was always by blood. It was always by a person. It was always by faith. There's never been two or three different ways to be saved. There's always been only one way to be saved, and that's by grace, through faith, trusting in the sacrifice that God would provide. And if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, if something else has happened, they can't have the citizens of Jerusalem and Judea believing that Jesus is risen from the dead. So you should ask a different question. Why would the soldiers accept the bribe? And I think that the reason is they're accepting the bride because there's this overwhelming temptation to tell the truth, to tell the truth. Tell us exactly what's happened. Number two, spread a fantastic lie about what happened to the body. It was stolen while we slept. Number three, what will I do? We have to protect the soldiers from possible punishment. What they didn't understand is that the plan was flawed right from the beginning. If the soldiers stuck to their story, think about it. Do the math. We fell asleep at our post. If that's true, is it or is it not a gross dereliction of duty? It's a gross dereliction of duty. The Roman punishment for a guard falling asleep at his post isn't that you get written up. It isn't that you get your hand slapped. You die. 
Falling asleep at your post is punishable by death. The Roman soldier Polybius tells us fear of punishment produced faultless attention to duty, especially in the night watches. If the soldier received mercy for falling asleep, they had to run the gauntlet. That is, a row of Roman soldiers who would be on either side who would beat him with clubs. There were 18 offenses punishable by death in the Roman army, including if you were a scout and you remained with the enemy and you were caught, you were killed. Desertion, killed. Losing or disposing of your weapons, death. Disobedience in war, death. Going over the wall or the rampart, death. Refusing to protect an officer, death. Desertion at one's post, death. A drafted man hiding from service, death. Murder, death. Wounding a fellow soldier with a sword, death. Disabling yourself or attempting to hurt yourself in order to engage the enemy, death. If you took the Roman centurion's staff, which was the symbol of his authority, and you broke it in half, death. If you struck a superior officer, death. Now, again, think about the story. If they said, the disciples came and stole the body while we were asleep, if you were asleep, how could you possibly know it was the disciples who stole the body? I mean, have you ever had a dream where you're dreaming about what's happening in reality? And can you imagine all of them dreaming the same dream that the disciples are stealing the body? Is that even possible? Of course it's not possible. And if you had 12 to 50 soldiers, how could all of them have fallen asleep? And how could they have not heard the stone move? The religious leaders want you to believe that the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb is a hoax, that it's a fraud, that it's a lie. This is exactly what the devil wants as well. He wants you to believe that it's not true. But do the facts support their claim? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Look at verse 15. So they took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews even to this day. The religious leaders are unable to prevent the resurrection, so they do the next best thing. They'll begin to plant the seeds of doubt in the minds of the people. This is exactly what Satan does. This is exactly what's probably happened to some of you. I've become a Christian. I've received Jesus as my Savior. Wait a minute, time out. What happened? Yeah, somebody told me about Jesus. I went to church. I heard the gospel. I heard that he loves me and that he died for me and that he came back to life. And they go, that's ridiculous. Dead people don't come back to life. You're brainwashed. You've been manipulated into buying into something that can't possibly be true. And then you say, then how do you explain that when I prayed to receive Christ, He came into my heart and He cleansed me and He forgave me of my sin and He washed me and He transformed me and He changed me? And I, again, I want you to think about what's happening in the text. Not only were the Roman soldiers not going to be punished for losing the body of Jesus, they're going to be rewarded for telling a lie. Just like in real life, among your unbelieving family and friends, they think that you will be rewarded if you'll tell a lie, if you refuse to tell the truth. Matthew reports that the lie was still widely reported when he wrote this gospel. When did he write this gospel? Some scholars date the book as early as 50 A.D., others between 60 and 65 A.D. We know that Justin Martyr wrote in his book Dialogue with Trifo 
the lie was still being circulated, and he wrote that in 155 to 167 AD. Justin wrote, quote, you Jewish leaders have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy has sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver, whom we crucified, but his body stolen by night from the tomb, and now deceived men by asserting that he is risen from the dead and that he is ascended into heaven, unquote. Many years ago, author G.B. Hardy wrote a book entitled Countdown, A Time to Choose. He basically noted that there are only two real questions that we can ask about our eternal destiny. Number one, has anyone, has anyone ever defeated death? And number two, if so, did he make a way for us to do it also? Hardy explains the answer to both questions in the resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 11, that's exactly what Jesus says. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me even if he were dead, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So what other theories have been advanced to explain Jesus without a resurrection? One of the most popular has been called the swoon theory. This idea originated in the 16th century by an Italian man named Vetturini. He suggested, hey, look, let me tell you what really happened. He uh, sort of passed out on the cross. He passed out. It looked like he's dead, but he's not really dead. He just uh, swooned. He fell into a death-like coma. What? Yeah, the severe pain, the trauma from the torture and the crucifixion caused Jesus to black out. And later, when they unwrapped the body in the cold, damp tomb, he revived. The disciples mistakenly presumed that he had come back to life. The problem with this theory? How do you explain the massive spear thrust under Christ's ribcage and the loss of blood? How do you explain that these two disciples were there and they're checking the body to see whether or not they're really dead? They notice that the two thieves are in fact not dead and they break their legs and they look at Jesus and they're asking the question, is this person really dead? You know what I'm hoping? I'm hoping that you never, ever have to spend a lot of time around death. But if you do, if you have any familiarity with death whatsoever, you understand that when a person's heart stops beating, the blood stops circulating in the body, and it starts to pool in whatever position that person is, at, is in. If they're lying on the back, the, pool, the blood will pool on the back. If they're hanging suspended from a cross, the blood will begin to transform and, and flow down to the lower extremities. These men were completely familiar with death. This soldier takes an eight to 10 inch long pilum. It's the edge of the spear. He slips it under Jesus's rib cage. He penetrates the pericardium sac and blood and water come out. How could the Roman soldiers have missed the signs of death and refused to break his legs? How is it that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus didn't see the signs of death. The women saw no signs of death. How is it that Jesus survives being wrapped in over a hundred pounds of spices? How does he revive after 40 hours in a tomb, unwrap himself, have the strength to move the stone? He overpowers the Roman sentries, and then he gets away. And then he has to convince his disciples in their cowardice that he is in fact risen from the dead. And then he walks the seven miles on crucified feet to Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend giving a Bible study from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. 
How is that even possible? How does he delude his disciples into thinking that he could walk through a wall? Why then does he ask Thomas to take his fist and put it in the wound that was a part of his chest cavity? How about the no burial theory? This is the theory that Jesus' body never made it to the tomb. According to this theory, Jesus is dumped into a mass grave along with the two thieves and perhaps some of the poor who died that day. He was placed on a garbage heap, and then his body was burned and eaten by dogs. Well, if that's true, why would the Jewish leaders post a guard over a tomb when no one's inside of it? In order to disprove the resurrection, the religious leaders would only have to find the dump site, produce the body. Or how about the mass hallucination theory? This is the theory that people who claimed to see Jesus didn't really see him, that they were simply deluded. They were suffering from post-collective grief of such extreme nature that they they literally make up seeing him. This was in, indicated by this intense desire to believe that Jesus was not really dead, but all of the facts seem to indicate that the disciples really believed that Jesus was really dead and that he was going to stay dead. When the women showed up at the tomb that morning, were they coming to celebrate a resurrected Savior or were they coming to anoint a dead body? The women were coming to anoint a dead body. Thomas was famous for not believing. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part are still alive but some have fallen asleep, unquote. How is that possible? That 500 people could have shared exactly the same hallucination. I grew up in the 60s. In the 60s, okay. A former famous president said, when he was asked if he smoked marijuana, he said, well, you know, I did smoke a little bit of marijuana, but I never inhaled. I inhaled. <laughs> so did all of my friends. We had hallucinations. People say, if you remember the 60s, you probably really weren't there. <laughs> In all of the trips that we took, we never took a joint, no pun intended, <laughs> trip and shared the same hallucination. How is this even possible that 500 people share the same hallucination? Or how about the telepathy theory? The telepathy theory is the idea that a power witch or a spiritist or a medium or aliens from another planet conjured up some sort of telepathic image of Jesus, that he was a sort of mental projection. He was some sort of cosmic hologram. The apostles and the disciples were deluded into following this mental projection. But again, we have a problem. Earlier in the chapter, the women, after meeting Jesus, cling to him. And at one point, Jesus says, stop clinging to me. I haven't ascended to my Father. If someone you love is coming back to life, you grab them. You hold on to them. You don't want to let them go. How do you cling to a holographic image? Why, again, would Thomas invite him to touch his wounds? How can a holographic image make fish tacos on the shores of the Galilee and then invite the people to eat? People involved in seances report clouds and ghosts and ectoplasmic images, but no one has ever, ever said, oh, my loved one came back and they made fish tacos. Or how about the mistaken identity theory? The mistaken identity theory, this is the theory that someone pretended to be Jesus. Now think this through. 
Someone who looks like Jesus, talks like Jesus, walks like Jesus. He's Jesus' exact weight and build. And then when is the switch made? Is the switch made in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did the fake Jesus perform a fake miracle? When Malchus the high priest is attacking and Peter takes a sword and cuts off his ear and the last notable miracle by Jesus, he sticks that ear right back on that guy's head. The last miracle that Jesus performs is to fix the mistake of a misguided disciple. And did this fake Jesus with the fake miracle, he's the one who's arrested, he is convicted, he is beaten, he's crowned with thorns, he's hung on a cross. The fake Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The fake Jesus turns to the thief on his side and he says, this day you will be with me in paradise. This fake Jesus says all of the fake things that allegedly take place on the cross, the real, now think about what happens. He dies on this cross while knowing that he's a fraud and an imposter. The real Jesus still has to steal the body and hide it. The real Jesus has to overcome the guard, remove the stone, ditch the body, pretend to be risen from the dead. Then he has to confront Mary in her hysterical grief, and then the other 500 witnesses, and then disappear forever. The next theory is the theft theory that's right here in the text. The disciples overpower a highly trained Roman guard. One of them pretends to be an angel from heaven. Their motive in stealing the body is to authenticate Jesus' misguided, mistaken, false claims that he's risen from the dead. If that's true, then how do you explain their lives? How do you explain them stealing the body disposing the body, concocting the tale, and then pretending to live for that lie. Except for John the, the apostle, the biblical record and church tradition have each apostle dying a brutal death. Does it make sense that 11 men risk their lives, risk their families, face unspeakable persecution, and preach the gospel and the resurrection for a lie? Matthew suffers martyrdom by being slain with a sword in the distant city in Ethiopia. Mark expires. His body is taken. He is literally roped behind a chariot. He's drugged through the streets of Alexandria literally until the flesh falls from his body. Luke is hanged from an olive tree in the land of Greece. John is placed in a vat of boiling oil by the emperor Domitian, but somehow miraculously escapes where he goes to the island of Patmos and writes the book of Revelation. Peter is crucified upside down in Rome. James the Greater is beheaded by Herod. James the Less is thrown from the lofty pinnacle that is in the temple. Somehow his body plummets down the hill. He actually winds up surviving. And a group of people take fuller's clubs. These are clubs that you would use to beat laundry. And they beat him to death. Thomas is run through with a spear lance in Coromundel. Bartholomew is skinned alive. Andrew is crucified on an X-shaped cross, all the while sharing with his captors the love of God and the fact that Jesus loves them and died for them. Matthias is stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas is stoned to death in Salonica. Paul experiences various tortures, various imprisonments, and then he's beheaded in Rome by the emperor Nero. How could these men participate in a massive conspiracy, maintain the conspiracy, and then die, never ever revealing the truth? What makes more sense? 
What makes more sense? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If not, I challenge you. Explain to me what really happened. Explain to me what happened to the body of Jesus. If the Roman soldiers stole the body, either to trick the disciples or extort the religious leaders, why didn't they eventually give it back? Rome and Romans cursed Christians and Christianity as the bane of the empire. Why would the religious leaders steal the body? They wouldn't. They're trying to discredit Christ and Christianity. If the disciples stole the body and were hiding it, why would they live their lives defending such a hoax? The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. The person who tells you it's a belief, the person who tells you it's just your opinion, has to offer evidence for some other explanation. The same Satan who tried to destroy Jesus on the cross would have you believe that Jesus is still dead. And the truth is, he's the true author of the conspiracy. He's the true mind behind the conspiracy. And the person of Jesus demands that he was raised from the dead. The Son of God, death could not hold him, it says in Acts 2.24. Jesus promised that he would rise from the dead. Not once, not twice, not even three times, five times in the book of Matthew. Five times he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested by the religious leaders. I am going to be killed, and I am going to come back to life. The Lord Jesus told the truth about everything. Even his enemies conceded his honesty. Either Jesus rose from the tomb or he's a liar and the apostles were deluded and the martyrs are deceived. The eyewitness testimony, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, the transformation of their lives. And the last evidence that I would invite you to consider is me. Do you realize that the most powerful testimony that you can give is your own? Imagine you say to your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your family, your friends, Jesus changed me. Jesus came into my life. In high school, I was voted most likely to go to hell. You're probably wondering, well, that wasn't at my high school. We had most popular, and we had most likely to succeed. But when I was in high school, a group of Christians got together, and they literally got into a circle, and they said, who is the person least likely to go to heaven? And went around the circle, Gino Geraci, Gino Geraci, Gino Geraci. Let's start praying for him. And they started praying for me. They invited me to a Christian concert where I heard the gospel. My family was so troubled you think it's bad being named most likely to go to hell? My brother was voted most likely to marry outside of his own species. <laughs> Do you realize how messed up you have to be to be voted most likely to marry outside of your own species? But Jesus came into my life. I prayed a prayer to receive him as my savior and I was changed forever. I want to close with just this little note from, that was written. It says, Dear Eutychus, he was a, he's a guy who does online um, consultation. Dear Eutychus, our preacher said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Signed, sincerely, bewildered. Dear bewildered, Beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails. 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for 40 hours. See what happens. 
Sincerely, Eutychus. The next time someone says to you, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Ask them gently, what do you believe? Tell me what you believe. Tell me what really happened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray for their family and friends. I pray for the people who struggle almost every day with the thought, is this really true? Did it really happen? Lord, I pray that you would lift the doubt and the discouragement from their heart. Lord, I pray that they would come to believe what's so obviously true. Jesus is risen from the dead. A real Savior has died for sin. He is able to come into our hearts and change us forever. And Lord, I invite that person who is listening to me, however they happen to be listening. Lord, I pray that they perhaps would find it in their heart to believe what I believe, that Jesus is alive. Lord, I pray that they would pray pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that the Bible is true. I know that my sin is real. And I know that Jesus is the Savior. I know that he can come into my life, that he can change me forever. Lord, I pray that you would do exactly that. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I believe in my heart, and I want to confess with my mouth that Jesus is the Lord. And so I give my life to you. I give my heart to you. And I give my future to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.